Well, thank you for all those amazing um, stories, for having the courage to, to say it and say it so clearly. It's very moving um, to hear those stories, and it's fantastic to be back with you again, to see how the church is growing and developing. Obviously, I, I see it here this morning, but we, um, we hear lots of other stories, and we meet people while we're here who confirm the same thing. And it's also especially good to be able to confirm to people back in England that Antley's not in prison at the moment. So... <laughs> You are, you are a huge encouragement to us. Uh, that, that's, that's the truth. Whenever we, when we're concerned about whether um, God is really with us, which we are, just as everybody else is from time to time, we, we uh, think about what God is doing here and in other parts of the world. And I bring you the greetings of all your friends, whether you know them or not, in, in London, in St. Mary's. It's great to be with you. Now, I'd like to read very quickly um, from um, the first chapter of Ephesians. And if you have a Bible, and I know that some of you will have one in my church, no one has one, but I'm glad that some of us here respect the Bible. Um, you might want to follow it. If you haven't got one, it doesn't matter. Um, my reputation is speaking uh, is uh, uh, somebody that speaks very loudly and very quickly, and I'm going to confirm that reputation today. So I'm sorry about that, but focus. Okay, so here we go. Listen to this. This is from Ephesians 1. And uh, Paul says, blessed be um, God because of all the blessings, the spiritual blessings uh, which he pours out upon us. I'm paraphrasing in verse 4, for example, he's chosen us before the foundation of the world, chosen us in fact to be holy and blameless, which is rather surprising. Um, And then he's predestined us um, to be adopted as sons and daughters of his. In verse 7, we have been redeemed through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our sins. Um, And he's lavished things upon us in verse 8. He's made known the mystery of his will in verse 9. It's all rather amazing. I know it's quite um, Christian language, but it's it's amazing if you get into it. And I'd like you to read that to yourselves just for a moment to see how amazing it is, or if you haven't got a Bible, just to think about how amazing it is. And this is what I'd like to say to you. You can't have any of that at all. And while you think about that, I'm going to sit down on this chair and read this book. I'm very glad to have found this book. I think it would be useful for my wife. It's called The Spirit-Controlled Woman. So I'm, I'm going to read this while you think about the fact that you can't have any of the things that Paul talks about there. This looks absolutely terrible. Anyway, you can't have any of those things at all unless, unless you understand in your head and in your heart this little word in the first two verses, which appear to be just like an introductory thing, a nice thing to say, but they're not. They're the gateway into everything. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and peace come before any of this. And that's what I want to speak about this morning. Now, peace with God is a given for anybody that believes in Jesus. It's a prize 
that's already been presented to us. It's ours today, tomorrow, and for the whole of eternity. It cannot be earned. It cannot be strived after. So if you've come here today and you feel guilty about something, if you feel not at peace with God, obviously it's really important to try and sort that out, for example, in the usual way, by confessing it to God. And we had opportunity to do that in the worship. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a status that, that is given to us when we believe in Jesus, that we have peace with God. And the language of peace... Um, is, is in here because Paul wants to talk about the opposite of peace, which he does in chapter 2. He talks about hostility between um, people, uh, between Jews and Gentiles specifically, and between us and God. So outside of Jesus, there is a state of hostility going on, but in Jesus, there is a reconciliation possible between all peoples. Uh, in fact, Jesus is the answer to world peace in that sense. He's the reconciler between peoples, but also, of course, fundamentally, this peace between us and God, which cannot be found anywhere else. Now, we know that Jesus won that peace for us through his death on the cross. There is no other route to peace with God, although obviously there are all kinds of schemas that people propose to try and find peace with God. Some people look within themselves, some people follow all kinds of spiritual disciplines, don't they? But we believe that there is no other way to peace with God other than what Jesus did on the cross. So our ingenuity doesn't do the job, our effort doesn't do the job. God has done for us what we were powerless to do, and it's not for us as Christians to try to establish something that's a given. You know, so much of the experience of Jesus comes when we just accept that certain things are true. And we are incorrigible strivers, some of us, and we would, we would much prefer it if God made things a bit more difficult. But when Jesus says, you know, you have to become like a little child to enter into the kingdom of God, I think what he means is you have to have the unashamed capacity simply to receive things without really spending a lot of time saying thank you just to rush uh, at the potential giver of whatever it is, grab hold of it, take it, and enjoy it. I think that's the childlike quality we're supposed to have, the, the eagerness and the willingness to receive. See, if I come home um, from work, I, I, as I'm getting through the door, my children besiege me, they grab hold of whatever they can grab hold of, and I walk in the house with them attached. And usually there are a lot of requests involved. They want things. And, um, you know, they've exhausted their mother, and I'm in as another potential giver of gifts. Um, so I think that is the childlike thing that Jesus wants from us. We must not, as Christians, try to work for what we already have. We are meant to just enjoy it. So peace is a given. And I want to ask you whether you think you have received that peace with God that is a given, that comes through what Jesus did on the cross. Secondly, I'll talk about grace. Grace is the means by which this peace is given. Grace is God's free and undeserved mercy. Now, this is the absence of grace. I'm sure this never happens in the States, but it does happen in London, in England. So I'm driving along, and somebody um, just cuts in on me, ahead, ahead of me. And uh, it's completely wrong. It's dangerous, and they get in ahead of me. And, and basically, I then do everything I can, and because I'm a Christian, legally and safely, to get back in front of them. <laughs> now, that is, um, that's not grace. It's justice. 
Now, this is Grace. Um, I know some of you will remember James Cronin, a football coach. And uh, basically, he, he ran this um, football thing every Tuesday night, which we used to go to in England, which I used to go to. And sometimes, for reasons best known to whoever it was, it used to be filmed. So you could, no matter how good it was, um, you thought it was live, it was actually not that good. And you could prove that by watching it filmed afterwards in the pub. And so we used to go to the pub afterwards and watch ourselves on video. And um, basically, that, that went on one night, and we we were, we were laughing and the, the volume was turned up quite high so you could hear people swearing at each other and generally being injured and we were, we were enjoying the whole thing in a strange perverse way and, and basically um, this guy comes into the bar and he starts really complaining to the, to, the, to the manager saying can you get those people to turn it down now it, it wasn't really that loud but obviously it was disturbing him he'd chosen the song and he couldn't really hear the song he felt so what we did was we went over to the manager and said you know does he want us to just turn it down because we could do that and he said, yeah, he does. So we did. And the guy was a bit stunned. He didn't really know what to make of that at all. And, you know, when he left, which was some time later, he came over and apologized for what he'd said and done. And um, it's interesting that, you know, had we operated on the basis of justice, we wouldn't have altered the volume in any way because, quite frankly, we weren't really making that much noise. But we operated on the basis of grace. And the impact of grace was quite significant for that guy. Now, what I want to say is that... Um, what we need to understand most about grace is that it, it isn't right. Grace is not right. Indeed, set in a context of a discussion about rights and wrongs, grace is frankly ridiculous. Grace and justice don't speak the same language. They don't live on the same street. They aren't two sides of the same coin. Here's God's grace and here's God's justice. They are not two sides of the same coin. They are from totally different mints. From the perspective of Mrs. Justice, it is obvious that Mrs. Grace behaves outrageously all the time. And one of the most awful things about Mrs. Grace is, is that she has absolutely no interest in calculating or counting. In fact, she doesn't count at all, especially when she really should. Now, Jesus told a number of parables to show that his grace is wholly different from our sense of justice, even different from our sense of the rightness of things. For example, there's the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and one of them wanders off, and he leaves the 99 prone to the natural sheep-like tendency to get the heck out of there. He leaves them on a mountainside to go and find the one. It makes no sense. It isn't right. When Jesus says, we are like sheep, that is not a compliment. There's a scene in which a woman takes uh, a... Um, oh, okay, thanks. Um, I'll just move back. Um, takes... There's a scene in which a woman takes a pint, a pint of, uh, of uh, exotic perfume, that's like a year's wages worth, and pours it out on Jesus' feet. Now, just an ounce of that perfume would have done the job. It just isn't right. After watching a widow drop two puny coins into the temple collection bags, Jesus belittles more hefty contributions. He says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more than any of the others. Well, that's not true. Not according to any correct mathematical calculation, it's not. It just isn't right. In Matthew 20, I really do like this one. A farmer hires people to work in his vineyards. Some start work at sunrise. Some, some start work at the morning coffee break. And an hour before it's time to stop work altogether, a few start working as well. At pay time, those who've worked throughout the heat of the day discover that they're going to be paid exactly the same amount as the sweatless upstarts that have done precisely one hour. 
The boss's action contradicts everything we know about employee motivation and fair compensation, and it represents ridiculous economics. Mrs. Grace getting into serious trouble with Mrs. Justice. So why should a widow's pennies count more than a rich man's millions? How dare an employee uh, pay a bunch of Johnny-come-latelys more than his trusted regulars? Grace contradicts our sense of justice. Have you ever um, seen the film um, Amadeus? It's a bit old now. It's about a guy called Salieri, uh, who is a Christian, and he has an earnest desire, but not the ability to create immortal music of praise. And it infuriates him that God has lavished the greatest musical gift of um, genius upon an impish pre-adolescent like Ed, sorry, like Mozart. (laughs) Why should God choose Jacob, the deceiver, over dutiful Esau? Why confer supernatural powers of strength on a delinquent called Samson? Why groom David, a runt of a shepherd boy, to be king over the whole of Israel? Why bestow a sublime gift of wisdom on Solomon, the fruit of that king's adulterous liaison? In each of these Old Testament stories, the scandal of grace is rumbling under the surface until in Jesus' parables, it erupts through the surface and totally reshapes the moral landscape. Jesus' parable of the workers and their grossly unfair pay confronts the scandal head-on. In a contemporary Jewish version, the people that start working late do such a good job that they get paid as much as everybody else. They impress the boss. But you see, in reality, the only kinds of people that weren't around to get signed on during harvest time are lazy, shiftless workers who are of no worth to anybody. And they're the ones that find themselves being paid the same amount as the people that have done it throughout the entire day. Jesus' story makes no economic sense, but it tells us about God's grace. Grace is not about finishing first or last. It's not about calculating or counting at all. It's wholly unrelated to justice, fairness, or rightness. Grace is about free gifts, whilst fairness is about earnestly Deserving, And most Christians bring that in to church when they come, and that is one of the main reasons they don't enjoy church. The scandal of the parable of the workers is that God feels entirely free to do exactly what he wants with his grace, including being generous to those who really, 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 really don't deserve it at all. Do I need to end this? No. Okay, let's think of the problem of unmediated God, because this is why we actually find this difficult. So in the Old Testament, we have the problem of unmediated God. There is no proper mediation between a holy God and a sinful humanity. And so, even the heroes of the Old Testament, they're only in until they screw it up. So Elijah, in the end, wants to die, and God says, all right. And you know the whole still small voice thing? That is not a compliment. It's an insult. God returns him to the level of a normal man and then he dies and gets replaced by Elijah. Moses screws it up somehow, something to do with speaking to a rock or something, and he doesn't make it into the promised land. You know, Saul screws it up. The miracle is that any of these people manage to walk with an entirely holy God at all. But God must be true to himself, and he is consistently true to his character of holiness and love all the way through. And everything that God does in the Bible is about him being totally true to himself, the thing that we find very difficult. 
Now, we suffer the problem of unmediated God, hence the whole, the whole hostility problem I mentioned earlier on. And what we really need is an end to the problem of unmediated God. And in Christ Jesus, that is what we have got. So here it is. I am free, fully alive, emotionally, intellectually, sexually. Here I am, fully created by God, fully alive in every way. And basically, there is a little problem. There's God, the pure light. And this is my sin. This is the distortion at the heart of things, the the, the heart of our problem being our distorted hearts. Separates us from God. Why? Because in God, there is no sin whatsoever, which, of course, is very good news. Here is Jesus, one exactly like me, alive in every way just as I am, fully human, very important that, fully incarnate as a human being, representative of me and you. Here he is. This is what happens on the cross. Are you ready? That's what happens. Now notice I'm free again. Notice the thing that separated me from the Father has been removed. So now we have a a mediator the man Jesus Christ, who is fully representative of us and fully representative of God, being the Son of God. So Son of Man, representative of you and me, Son of God, representative of the Father, and therefore perfectly qualified and uniquely qualified to draw us together again, to end the hostility, to take it away once and for all. So we now have a mediator. We have perfect mediation. And what that means is that everything we have ever done Everything we will ever do has already been dealt with. And the answer to no longer being a naughty boy or a naughty girl doing the same thing again and again is to live in the reality that you are already free because of this grace of God that he has given. You know what? There is not another answer. You can go to counselling. You can have therapy. You can get people to pray for you every week. You can wait to be zapped by the Spirit, and I believe in being zapped by the Spirit. None of that is going to do the job. None of it. It is the realisation that you are already free that that being grasped in your heart by faith and walking as though you are a saint of the most high god nowhere are christians described in the new testament as sinners they are described as saints you're a saint of the most high god if you think of yourself as a sinner guess what you will sin if you think of yourself as a saint of the most high god you will sin less walk in the spirit Now, somebody quoted these verses uh, earlier on in in one of their stories. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, declares the Lord. Do you know the context of that? The context is of God speaking about his eagerness to forgive. So basically, it could well be argued that the otherness of God is best represented, the difference between God and you, God and me, is best represented by his desire to forgive. By his grace. The cross is the resolution of the dramatic tension within God between his holiness, which is repulsed by our sinfulness, and his grace, which wants to embrace us anyway. You see this so clearly in, um, in, um, uh, in um, one of the books of the Bible, Hosea. God wavers in Hosea between solemn threats of judgment and tender reminiscences of his people. Swords will flash in the city, he darkly warns. Then in mid-sentence, a cry of love. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused, God concludes. I will not carry out my fierce anger, for I am God, not man, the Holy One amongst you. The cross is the resolution of the dramatic tension within God, which we see clearly being worked out in the, in the Old Testament, coming to a conclusion in the New. 
God's settled attitude of grace towards us. Now, grace baffles us because it goes against every intuition that we have that in the face of injustice, some price has to be paid. A murderer simply cannot go free. A child abuser cannot shrug and say, I just felt like it or even it was done to me. Well, we needn't worry about that because, as I explained, a price has been paid. A price must be paid and a price has been paid, but not by those who ought to pay it, as we know, but by God himself in Christ. So God gave up his son rather than giving up on humanity. Grace is not a grandfatherly display of niceness because it costs the exorbitant price of the cross. By paying the price that should have been paid, God in Christ has fulfilled the law, but he has shattered all legal categories. Grace is free because the giver has borne the cost. So, in conclusion, given the lengths that God in Christ has gone to, to offer us, offer us his grace, I suggest to you that it is really important that we receive it. No doubt most of us here would agree. So why is it that we find it so hard to accept it for ourselves? Well, I don't have much time, so I'm just going to be brief and rude. Years of wrong te- teaching in church don't help. Right? That does not help you. We, we, we believe what we are taught, especially in places like families or church. And so some of us will have become impervious to grace, being at the stage where we, where we believe in God, but we cannot accept that he believes in us. We've got to get it into our heads that as Christians, we do not live under the law, not any law except this law, the law of love. We, we are absolutely bound to love one another as I have loved you, as Jesus said. But apart from that, you know what? Laws about tithing, they're out. You know why? It's part of the Old Testament. Laws about chocolate, believe me, I've had that. People have been in church and they've been told you must not eat chocolate. If you want to please the Lord, no chocolate, right? That's rubbish. Laws about alcohol, laws about alcohol, it's rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Jesus came eating and drinking and was a friend of sinners. What do you think? He said, no, no, not drinking. Rubbish. He turned how much water into how much wine? You must be joking. Do not allow yourself to become enslaved by these sorts of things. I'm only picking a few. Dating, rules about dating. That is rubbish. There are no laws. There are no rules. Now, obviously, we have to work out what is a responsible attitude to these things. But don't blame Jesus for it. (laughs) Associating with certain sorts of people. Oh, no, 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 we don't go there. We don't talk to those people. Oh, no. What, what, what is Jesus going to make of that? Jesus, who is a friend of prostitutes. I know this question has been asked recently. You know, Do you know any prostitutes? I knew a male prostitute. He was in my life course group. I went to meet him in Soho. And, it, you, know, and you know what he used to do? He used to lead a church. Do you know why he stopped leading a church? Because of the religious attitude of people in his church and other churches that were jealous of what he was doing. It's difficult to imagine, isn't it? Except we remember that there but for the grace of God go you and I. You know, you can't read Paul without seeing the bitter struggle he had with religious people. The Judaizers who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but who believed you also needed to keep the Jewish law. I mean, it kind of makes sense, you know, after all, God had given the law, right? So, of course, Gentiles need to be circumcised. Of course, they need to observe the ritual food laws. Paul says, no, they don't. They do not need to complete the law, and neither do you. Any laws that you have going on, right, they need to go. God does not hate you if you forget to read the Bible one day. Or if you haven't got time. Or even two days, maybe. 
He's not judging you on the basis of your legal performance. If he, if he wants to do that, we could stay in the Old Testament. And then we could just stone people and do other things that, you know, if everybody makes a mistake. We're not there anymore, are we? So let's not live as though we are there. It's the thing that stops you feeling happy in church. The feeling that God is basically a stern teacher looking down from the balcony, waiting for you to have fun, saying, stop it! That's the kind of God we live with. And we worry that it cannot be like this. The authentic Christian dilemma is to live in the freedom that God wants us to live in. Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. For freedom. Do you feel that your, you know, your general experience of church and God is one of freedom? Because if it's not, it's not the Christian one. It's supposed to be about freedom. Free responsiveness to the Spirit, which may mean that under certain circumstances we don't drink, and certain circumstances we do. Sometimes we're going to go to see that film, sometimes we're not, because we are free to follow the directions of the spirit not the directions of other people not religious directions the directions of the spirit we are free it is for freedom that christ has set us free that's the whole deal that that is what makes antley such a great leader now if i could replicate antley i would my my greatest need professionally is to find more and more church leaders we have huge opportunities to plant churches but can i find the leaders at the moment i can't if i could replicate anley and do it like 900 times over and stick him in different parts of the world i would do that because he's rude because he's free because he's relaxed because he's not religious because he tells jokes this is what makes a gifted leader what he's you know it's all intentional don't you you know that if he wanted to he could be a good presbyterian he could He's done it for years. I, hey, I'm not joking. If he wanted to, he could play that game for you. The object of the game, for, from his point of view, is to, show, is, to make, is to do it in every single way, like the film notices and all the rest of it, like the way he leads the service. The whole aim of the game is to say, when we come here, we have got to be ourselves. We've got to be human beings. We've got to be free. We've got to be open to the encounter with God that may happen. You know, what if the God we believe in actually, actually showed up and did something? It's all about creating that space. And obviously there are going to be mistakes. Sometimes it's going to you know, say the wrong thing or go over a line. That's going to happen. It happens in St. Mary's every other week. <laughs> anyway, this is how John, the author of the gospel, introduced himself. He said, I am the one Jesus loves. That's how John introduced himself. I am the one Jesus loves. Not as I am a theologian, I am an apostle, I am an author. Now, what would it mean if we came to the place where we saw our primary identity in life as the one Jesus loves? Sociologists have a theory of the looking glass self. You become what the most important person in your life thinks you are. How would our lives change if we really believed the Bible's astonishing words about God's love for us? If we looked in the mirror and saw what God sees? Now, here is a t-shirt, which I think you should get, at least internally. I think you all need this t-shirt. Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. I think you should try and get that one. <laughs> Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. If you're shocked by that, if you're traumatized by that, you are a religious person. Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. This is, what, this is what John says. Hey, you know what? I'm the one Jesus loves. How Christian is that? Is he making comparisons with other people? Not really. He's just saying, I know that God loves me. I mean, you know. As opposed to having a mathematical God who weighs our good and bad deeds on a set of scales and always finds us wanting. Somehow we miss the God of the Gospels, the God of mercy and generosity, who constantly finds ways of shattering the laws of ungrace. Perhaps there's a simple cure for people who doubt God's love for them and therefore call his grace into question. 
Turn to the Bible and examine the kinds of people that God loves. David, described by God as a man after his own heart, who murdered and committed adultery. Rahab, described as an example of faith, from whose lineage Jesus came, who was a prostitute. Peter, the first great church leader, who denied that he even knew Jesus and called down curses upon him. Paul, the greatest missionary, recruited from the ranks of those who tortured Christians. If you ever see pictures of people um, who've been tortured, you can't help thinking, what kind of person could ever do such a thing? Well, the answer is someone like Saul. The chief of sinners transformed into the apostle of grace. Now, if God can love that kind of person and use them, you know, to write the Bible and other things, do you think it is possible, maybe, somehow, that he could possibly accept you and me? Good. 